Welcome to Blink of an Eye, where we interview thought leaders and deep thinkers on trauma healing wisdom, both ancient and modern, as we learn together with experts from around the world. We also engage in captivating relational conversations with spinal cord injury heroes and innovators in our Dear Louise series. Out of one mom's trauma to integration story, Blink of an Eye brings you a collection of unparalleled and diverse views as we take you on an inspiring and unvarnished look at the true nature of trauma in all our lives. Today's episode is part of our Dear Louise series, where I have the joy of conversing with extraordinary individuals living with spinal cord injury, who both embrace and defy their physical limitations as entrepreneurs, trailblazers, tastemakers, and innovators. Join us as we explore what is possible in spinal cord injury. This episode is sponsored by Blink of an Eye Nonprofit and by Baltimore Mediation. Our next guest is living with spinal cord injury, not as the injured person, but as the main caregiver for his son after a catastrophic SCI accident, helping him make the shift toward an independent lifestyle. Matthew Roderick radically shifted his life focus to a quest for finding restorative SCI treatments for his son and later to advocacy, working at both local and national levels to instruct, coordinate, and foster partnerships among key contributors, all aimed at accelerating advancements in SCI treatments. Presently, he holds the position of Executive Director at United to Fight Paralysis. Stay tuned. I'm blessed to introduce you to Matthew Roderick. Matthew, a resident of Minneapolis, Minnesota, became involved in the spinal cord injury community when his son, Gabe, suffered an SCI, a C5 injury in 2008, while body surfing in Costa Rica. After leaving his job as an emergency department operations supervisor at Fairview Health System, Matthew and Gabe embarked on a global journey to find the best therapeutic options. However, they eventually returned to Minnesota to advocate for research towards a spinal cord injury cure. Matthew took the lead in forming a coalition of SCI community advocates and researchers in Minnesota aiming to persuade the state legislature to allocate public funds for SCI research. We're going to hear more about Unite to Fight Paralysis and get another inside look at the nature of trauma in all our lives. Welcome, Matthew. Happy to be here, Louise. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the intro as well. Oh, so happy to have you here. You know, I'm really struck by you've had this career devoted to being calm in the face of emergency. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, you experienced a, a family trauma and faced your own crisis. 
And then as a dad, you turned advocate. Can you give us a sense of who you are on the inside? You know, what's the essence of Matthew and, Roderick? Um, so certainly uh, my experience in the ER was a, I used to tell people that I think people who excel in that space are people who get more calm as things get more crazy. Uh, and I certainly have that skill and attribute probably from a long history in uh, my childhood, adulthood. And then certainly having a little bit of a leg up, having all this experience in a healthcare system, which a lot of folks in our community do not have. And so that can be all the more overwhelming than it already is. Certainly that helped in the transition and a lot of connection and resource to physicians and therapists and, you know, sort of a, a familiarity with that. But getting to the heart of it, I would mm. say, I mean, obviously, like any parent, you love your child. And when something horrific happens, um, you know, you flip to a whole different level of investment and choices because, um, you know, the choices I made for my son to leave my career to travel in pursuit of therapies that had consequences um, for my community and my family, even my immediate family, to be gone, to have a significant uh, change in income uh, capacity. But I think back to your fundamental question, I'm also a little bit of a zealot. And I think uh, that's an attribute in this context, uh, which was very helpful to have, maybe not in all contexts, to be mm. the, the kind of zealot that I am. But certainly that was in service to what I did then, what I do now, what I continue to pursue uh, with Unite to Fight Paralysis. Well, we welcome zealots. Thank you. And I will share with you that I've been teaching something called the Enneagram, which oftentimes people think is a personality mm -hmm. system. It's actually quite ancient. And I've taught so many people in the emergency health care system, mm -hmm. and they are a particular type that really braces for the worst and is excellent at troubleshooting what is believed to be harmful or coming their way. And on behalf of others as well. And so you perhaps found yourself in the right career and now as an advocate, as a zealot, it's just an extension, but a different pond. <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I guess one added little nuance in my role in emergency department, man, I did it for about 10 years in the operational management role. Uh, I did a lot of process improvement work. And so I was, uh, drinking from a fire hose of systems analysis without really knowing it. And I started to, I think I got fairly good at it. And certainly that's something I've reflected on in my advocacy work and activist work that applying this kind of system analysis, looking at the larger research system and academic system and funding system and thinking about how we can improve it or accelerate it or catalyze it to more effectively deliver restorative treatments for people with spinal cord injuries. Mm -hmm. So that was a particular, I think a, a kind of tool certainly has required a lot of sharpening and tweaking and refining 
and even more tools. But looking back, I think that was a helpful piece of working in the healthcare system. And actually, at the same time, becoming quite disillusioned with how healthcare operates. I'm guessing you probably, especially in the mental health area, currently, acutely, you know, there's real problems in the system of delivery of care, particularly for people with mental health issues. Yeah, I think this piece, whether it's physical injury and health at risk or mental health, emotional and spiritual health, Mm. that um, the background, as you mentioned earlier, that you might bring that others in the spinal cord injury may not have had the systems view is one that I bring myself as a mediator working in high conflict in systems. Mm. Mm. And it helps to understand the nature of trauma. And um, therefore, what you're really advocating for, and perhaps more importantly, the process that you'll Mm. follow you know, to, to move something forward. As we both know, I imagine it's never, you know, one step forward and another step forward. It's often <laughs> one step forward and two steps back and yeah. three leaps forward, sideways you know, and then sideways. And trip and exactly. fall into a trip ditch, and fall. get back up. Yeah, yeah exactly. Sure. Bruise nose, you know, sure. got to get yeah. at it again kind of thing. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I'm so happy that you're the man doing that. I'm, I'm really curious about a couple of things you've also mentioned about how it is that you said, you know, parents may turn to advocacy. Why do you suppose that is, that parents who have faced a crisis with their children, uh, that's traumatic? Well, the, the, you know, certainly the obvious and even the cliched, um, you know, especially for a father, there's a cliche, you know, of men or fathers wanting to fix problems. I think that's a cultural cliche. You know, this is a radical change to your life, to your family, to your loved one, whether it's a kid or a spouse or a parent or, you know, I mean, I've heard all the stories. And for some folks, certainly not everyone, but for some folks, uh, that's enough of a shift to say, well, I just can't go back to what I was doing before. I think I might have written a blog post a long time ago about this sense of, you know, if you imagine life as this sort of uh, freeway, you know, that everyone's racing down and uh, pulling off to rest or get gas or what have you. And this trauma experience is sort of like just getting kicked off the freeway into a cul-de-sac, you know, where there's nowhere to go. And you have to stay there for a bit and you have to figure out what just happened. While you're watching the life that you did have race by and all the people around you, you know, the world continues to spin. The stock market continues to open and close and soccer games that you used to coach at or be at or care about or whatever, whatever it is that you loved and did. It's no longer in your vehicle. right? And so you have to sort of make a decision. Um, without judgment, you know, some people find their way back to that life and that career. Other people make radical changes. Uh, in our case, in my case, that was what I did. I just thought there's no, how can I go back to this highly demanding, you know, 60 hour a week and more sometimes career trying to move up the ranks of, you know, hospital administration and what have you. That was absurd to think of that in the context of what happened to my son. Wow. But in retrospect, you know, as I mentioned, the choices that you make 
you know, that meant my income was significantly different. It meant uh, a lot of different things for our family, even for my other kids, you know, that I was less present, more absent at critical times. And that has a fallout. Every choice, yeah, has a consequence. You try to make changes initially on behalf of the immediacy, you know, the, the proximity that you have to this trauma, this injury, this change. And then eventually that starts to expand. And you see, oh, there's other people who've gone through this. There are other people that, are, that you share. And there's this whole community that I was unaware of that I'm now a part of. And that begins to change how you look at the world, your experience of the world. Yeah, you've just given us a lot there. Wow. Just from a perspective of how you just really can't go back to life as it was for many. And it's been said that for those who do try, there can really be a lot of suffering in that because life is not the same. And of course, that's an aspect of trauma and trauma healing because trauma can have many of us and I can even attest to this for a number of years, like thinking it would be the same, you know, that that our re-normalizing would really, we could go back to how it was. And it's just an aspect of being numbed from the trauma itself, which we know is actually a very healthy response if we allow it to unfold, but it's not a healthy response long-term. It's interesting the way you phrased that. Uh, I'm reflecting my son and I, my son who's injured, have talked a lot over the years about this sort of notion of porosity and versus sort of rigidity or, you know, inability to absorb uh, what happens around you. And I believe my son and I both are very porous people. Um, you know, we take in a lot and allow it to come through you mm-hmm. as opposed to can't let that in. Right. And let, yeah, let things sort of more flow through you mm-hmm. and transform you as a result. Um, mm-hmm. And I do believe for both of us, that's been transformative, redemptive, uh, healing part of the journey is that ability or decision sometimes to remain porous to what's happening around you. It's certainly a quality of integration for those who might not resonate with this quality of being able to flow (laughs) or to be porous. It's not a, a judgment because in fact, what we know about trauma is that the brain puts us into two states. You know, we, we numb out, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, I can't, I'm I'm in overwhelm and, and can only do so much and remain a little frozen, um, even though we are still being productive. And then the other state is this sense of, uh, you know, hypervigilance that also has us on so much that we're very tunnel visioned. Mm-hmm. And so though both of those are, are really normal responses and the work for all of us in trauma and trauma healing is to allow a process where we can melt that and get to flow. So maybe it's something that you and Gabe were doing together that had a relational reciprocity Mm -hmm. with each other. Was it something like that? I mean, as 
a lot of folks know, particularly who made similar choices to what we did, you know, of leaving career and traveling and doing rehab and recovery. You know, a lot of folks have heard a lot of stories like that. Your relationship changes. Now, my son was young, you know, he'd injured right prior to his 16th birthday. And I've often told people, you know, in, in those years that followed, several years until he really started to kind of, I was going to say extricate, but it's really more like, you know, as he grew to more independence. Yeah, like a separation individuation. Yeah, but there is a kind of extrication, you know, as part of that because you become really enmeshed. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm his father, his caregiver, his trainer, his coach his best friend, his travel companion, his confidant, you know, you become all these things and there's a real danger in staying there. Mm -hmm. Obviously he could sort of recede behind me or behind my personality, or I could recede into him and his needs and his personality. We talked about these things a lot and I was very cognizant of uh, not wanting to be a sticky parent and allow myself, allow him distance and room to grow and become. Um, both of us are artists. Gabriel is a very accomplished musician and writer and uh, now visual artist and choreographer. You know, he's been doing a lot of different things here uh, in the Twin Cities. And so there's a lot of reflection. Uh, there's a lot of mining the depths. Both of us have that kind of uh, approach. You know, I, I still play music, I write music, perform. So I'm, when I do that, I'm, I'm digging a bit into my, into the shadowy parts of my brain, uh, mind, uh, trying to unearth these things. So I think that was an added aid yeah, in yeah. that sort of trajectory for both of us. Yeah, that willingness to be introspective and to mm -hmm. go to the places or the dark crevices, if you will. You know, I'm really appreciative of your recognizing that you may have been aiding in a situation of enmeshment. You know, I'm pretty familiar with that. And I don't know if you know the work of Pia Melody, a marvelous uh, interventionist and writer and teacher and scholar of enmeshment and mm. all the ways that parents can find <laughs> themselves or, and children mm -hmm. and adult children mm -hmm. can find themselves enmeshed uh, with their parents or with, you know, another sibling or even, you know, it can even happen with, with spouses as well on occasion, yep. but there's usually um, a power gap, if you will, in the enmeshment, but it's right. oftentimes not recognizable because it's hinged by hopefulness and, you know, guidance mm -hmm. and modeling and things of this nature. Well, when did you recognize that you and Gabe were enmeshed? I personally had a high sensitivity to that very early on. And I had, you know, I had a few friends that I would talk about this with and I was, you know, I would sort of raise it with them that consciousness that I have to be very careful. You know, I'm a very forward person. I'm a very opinionated, um, loud mouth in some ways. I'm from the East Coast. I'm from Philadelphia. 
I've been confronted with that for the 35 plus years that I've lived in the Midwest. So I'm kind of had a hypersensitivity to that and wanted to be very careful. And also recognizing early on with Gabriel, the way the culture responds to a person with a disability. Mm-hmm. There's a diminishment and there's a paternalism, sometimes even condescension. And there were often times where people would ask Gabriel a question through me. And so I was very hypersensitive to that as well. I think relatively early on, I was thinking about it. But in many ways, I have to credit Gabriel for announcing to his mother and I and his stepmother that he was moving out. And he found an apartment and he had two roommates and he was going to move in. And he gave us the dates and said, this is when it's going to be. <laughs> and he was, uh, he was throwing 18. down the gauntlet. Yeah. yeah. So it was only two years in. And it was after we had traveled to California. We'd lived in Kansas City. We'd been in India for four months, one year. It was after that stretch that he was like, I'm out. Um, I have to move on. And then the next one was he's going to community college. And he said, I'm dropping out and I'm starting a band. <laughs> and I'm just let, he was just like, I'm letting you know. I'm letting you know. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I think in some ways I have to, cre- or many ways I have to credit his wisdom to recognize I got to make some steps here. I have to uh, move forward in these areas and I'm going to do it. Yeah. How powerful that is when it Mm -hmm. comes from the junior of the uh, enmeshment dyad to Mm -hmm. say, I'm, I'm stepping out with a new, a new boundary, a new hope, a new possibility. And also the cues that can come from society that are painful and yet there can even be some learnings in those cues, oh, the diminishment, you know, or the, or the telling you that you're a loud, boisterous kind of guy or whatever it was, you know, to say, oh, gosh, that gives me some pause for my power over this now relationship with my spinal cord injured son. Well, and all those things can be very liberating. Yes. Again, I think that's relative to that porosity that I talked about earlier. You take that in allow it to come into you and, you know, ruminate on it, taste it, measure it, then you end up very likely in a better place, I think, to sort of understand, oh, this is how I'm being understood, or this is how I'm being received, or I'm being received like I thought I was being received, or not. You know, all of those things can happen provided you're paying attention, listening, and pursuant. I mean, ultimately, I hope that all of us are not asleep, right? Yeah, so this power of awareness. Do you have an awareness practice that keeps you alert to these things? That's a good question. I don't have a specific practice now. I grew up in a religious environment, a Christian environment, and as a young man in particular, I was a bit of a little missionary zealot, you know, I was going to change the world and go to seminary. And, and in that time I learned, you know, a lot of the kind of classical disciplines of meditation and prayer. And I mean, even fasting and, you know, things like that to very, stay very alert and aware yes. of my, my body, mind, spirit. I don't do those things anymore. And I don't, I've moved away from the faith in many ways. 
I mean, there's still plenty of mystery around that, but I think, I think I try to live in a kind of consciousness. That's funny. Just, uh, I was telling my wife last night, actually, we went to a music festival up in Winnipeg for a vacation just a week and a half ago. And during one performance of an indigenous musician from Canada, from uh, British Columbia, I was just walking around this large crowd of people and sort of reflecting on the desire to remain in a place of depth, a place that you're, you're able to embrace mystery. You're mm. able to embrace a little bit of darkness, like a little bit of, I don't know what's, I don't really know what's underneath my feet. A little bit of uncertainty. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think much of my adult life, I've been in that kind of mindset that I don't want to hang out in the shallow end of the pool. I get bored with that. And I'd rather, much rather be in a place where I'm challenged. I'm thinking more deeply, reflecting more deeply, doing things that have consequence. I don't meditate. I don't practice yoga. My wife does some of that. My wife's a therapist. Uh, so very suitable, suitable to me. Yeah, that's really um, beautiful. I'm struck how without the practices, and it's not that it's an essential component, but I'm really struck by your early teachings in Christianity, uh, the mm. awakening that you were given to prayer or to breath work. And I'm thinking you, you didn't say this, but what had also come to my mind was service. You know, that little boy who was a real zealot, you know, you've kind of taken that zealousy that hasn't, uh, that hasn't left you um, yeah. moving into a, a new kind of service. Yeah, that's a great insight. I didn't mention that, but certainly, you know, without being crass, you know, in my teenage years, I was committed to, you know, saving people from hell and damnation, right? you know, thinking of myself as a little evangelist soldier. Into my early 20s, I started to dispense with some of that orthodoxy and and even faith in some of those tenets of more conservative Christianity. I was sort of getting rid of a lot of that. But the imprint of that, that there's a purpose to your life, there's Mm. there's a task to be done, uh, in service to others or in service to your, you know, your God or your faith. Something that, larger than you are. Yeah. Something more important than yourself, something larger yeah. than you. Yes. Certainly that's a feature of why I do what I do, uh, how I do it, how I think about it, because that was very much imprinted on me. I, it's funny. I have a friend whose um, father is a very famous evangelist, Christian evangelist. And he was following in his footsteps and came out a number, maybe 10 years ago as an atheist. As he was doing that, you know, he's on the speaker circuit and traveling all over the place and finally came out. He was written up in a bunch of different places. And now he's he essentially is doing the same thing, but from a secular humanist point of view. You know, he has a podcast and he still speaks and, you know, he's done all sorts of, you know, very zealot missionary like things but it's just there's no god now right we've talked about that a little bit that that imprint on us is just a part of who you are and how you look at everything around you yeah it's certainly 
been said that that uh, type of imprinting is one of the key features that actually brings people through the greatest traumas and crises mm-hmm. because they have been told and experienced at a young age or somewhere in their formative years that there was something larger than they were. Right. Yeah. 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 Really, really beautiful. You know, I'm wondering about your family. You've mentioned them a couple of times, uh, your, your wife and then your former wife. Can I explore some of that with you? Sure. We're interested in, in trauma and trauma healing. And for you, I'm going to get to the part about your expertise and this advocacy, but the man, you know, Matthew Roderick, the man, the impact of trauma in your life. Uh, you opened the door and I just thought I would walk through it with you. Sure. Is your family a different configuration now since the injury? Not really. My first wife and I, Gabriel's mother, we were divorced about six months, maybe five months before Gabriel's injury. We had been separated for about five years prior to that, uh, living separately. So there was a lot of trauma there, actually. Yeah. And my second wife, I was seeing, and we actually decided to get married while Gabriel was still in the hospital as a sort of practical choice. After I approached her when we returned to the country, it was maybe a couple of weeks after getting back from Costa Rica where Gabriel had his surgery and acute care. I always remember being in a hospital ramp with my now wife, Kristen, and saying, you know, hey, I, this is kind of difficult to say, but I, I need to give you a pass, you know, that this may not be what you signed up for. This changes, this has changed everything. And our future is going to be different if you stay with me. And she essentially just kind of punched me in the arm and said, you idiot, I'm, I'm with you. Wow. We'll pause now in support of our sponsors who support Blink of an Eye. We'll be right back. Blink of an Eye nonprofit is filling a gap nationwide in response to spinal cord injury trauma for families in the first hours and days of injury. With fewer than 20 hospitals in the country having SEI expertise, Blink of an Eye has navigators who themselves have been there as SEI survivors and who are trained in relational approaches to trauma, who are available 24-7 to support families, empowering them on their journeys, navigating their lives, and interacting with medical staff for the first 30 days. The nonprofit's mission is to transform the SCI crisis experience into an extraordinary one, despite the devastation. When you learn of a newly injured SCI family, call Blink of an Eye on their toll-free number, 1-844-41-BLINK. You can also learn more and get involved with Blink of an Eye at www.blinkofaneye.org. Blink of an Eye is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. Since 1993, Baltimore Mediation has been leading the way in a relational approach to conflict and problem solving. They are national leaders in teaching and providing fully immersive and experiential online training in mediation and conflict transformation skills. 
Register for the next course at www.baltimoremediation.com. The quality of your interactions at work, at home, and in your daily life will be transformed. And you will create more well-being for yourself and others. Better process, better outcome, Baltimore Mediation. And now, back to the show. I'm just going to pause on that because not all marriages um, or relationships would have that response. And a response that's different doesn't mean that it's, you know, worse. It's just that you gave her the heads up and somehow she accepted, at least blindly. (laughs) Yeah. But punching you in the arm and saying, you know, you idiot. um, I just want to take that in. I think the other part is, you know, due to this sort of timeline and also that in that first 24 hours, you know, my son was in another country and so it took a little while to get there. But in that whole journey to getting there, you know, one of the things I couldn't help, I couldn't really escape was the thought of like how we just navigated in the last few years how to do this separately. You know, my first wife, Gabriel's mother, and and then my son, Charlie, the younger, Gabriel's younger brother. I remember thinking to myself, we're going to have to get back together. I'm going to have to stop being Kristen and stop thinking about that future. And so there was this period of time where I was like, I don't know how we're going to do this. Yeah. What's this going to look like? And thinking, you know, we're going to have to get back together. And then but within about a full day. And then finally, when, when Gabriel's mom arrived, I kind of realized like, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> like after all the years. One of the things we, we know, like just a real basic definition of trauma is a feeling of separateness. Right. And one of the things that healthy people do is they look to be connected. Yeah. Right. And they go to what's most familiar. It's just the most natural thing in the world. To do. Actually, even in a, a much larger context, like the larger community of people around us, the family and all of those things were, you know, I was kind of thinking about what's that going to look like? How is that going to work in an area where that's, there was a lot of fracture? Mm-hmm. And it was in that sort of transition over a couple of months of kind of, and especially with Kristen's answer to me of, you know, that's absurd to think I'm going to check out because of this, the kind of sort of imagining a future architecture of support and connectivity across both what had been fractured and what had been yet to realize became really foundational going forward. Took a lot of work, particularly in the first year or two, but I'd say very much what has enabled all of us to do okay. Now there's still the Kristen, my second wife has a son, my stepson, who's now 22 and my other son, Charlie is 28. Now, you know, there was some fallout for both of them in this injury. Trauma's messy. Yeah, for sure. If you'd be willing to share, what was the work that became so foundational? You know, without going into too much detail, my separation and divorce was very complex and difficult, traumatic in and of itself. Like that was a trauma. On the whole family system before the injury. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and the whole family, but even on me, like I have a lot of uh, family, family of origin stuff, like a lot of history of broken families and, uh, and even some deception and we could have multiple podcasts on my, my family story. And that personally was a part of that trauma for me of being divorced. It's not something I ever imagined uh, happening. Um, and it came from me. There was a lot of reparations to do in order to have a solid support, familial support, and then even communally, community-wise. And some of that didn't happen. Like some people didn't stick around. Some people didn't stick around on my side of the equation. It was a real challenge to do that, to kind of navigate and figure that out together. But I think much of it came from, you know, as I mentioned, my wife is a therapist. I probably should have been a therapist, really. So we, we are talkers. We are think talkers. We have very strong uh, communication. But there was a lot of open dialogue and communication. Doesn't mean it was easy. Doesn't mean it was all tulips and, you know, angel food cake. Uh, sometimes it was very, very difficult. Oh, gosh, you know, just the courage it takes uh, or that it took for you, your family, or just for anyone on this journey. It's not linear and it's messy. It's not, you know, you go from A to B and Eureka, you know, it's that you're at the end, you've met the goal. It's really ongoing, ever unfolding. I'm really moved by the legacy that you are aware of in your family. And that you then said, that won't be me. And then to find yourself there, but to be doing this work, we do know in the world of collective trauma and trauma healing, true integration, that cellularly and energetically, each of us, if we do our work, and often in concert, you know, with others, that we can change the legacy burdens for the next generation. And that's so hopeful. I mean, I think of it a lot in the context of spinal cord injury and the strategies to cure it around plasticity and even things like the perineuronal net or disrupting, I don't know the literature, but what I do understand of trauma you know, there's a sort of locking in cellularly of this traumatic experience and your habitual response to it. Your reality changes. And it's the same with spinal cord injury. Locked into, you have this, these cells that are designed to help your body be good at something or uh, strengthen synaptic connections so you can move efficiently betray you by locking into a, an impassable wall that you can't regenerate through. And so you're looking to disrupt that. I think about that a lot in the context of what you're describing. I believe for me personally, that that porosity that I talked about is a sort of practice of plasticity that you are constantly trying to remain plastic or condition yourself to be plastic so that you don't get stuck 
And yeah, in yeah, that yeah. place where people with paralysis are stuck because of this pathology, pathophysiology of the injury, well, the same thing is happening in your brain and body. It's also the same thing that's happening in your relationship and intimacies that still requires that porosity and that attention in order to be free, to be liberated in yourself and in your relationships and in your body, ultimately. I'm just crazy about your word, porosity. (laughs) I love it. And this notion of, you know, bringing you back to being porous Mm. because we do know that unmetabolized trauma, trauma is an energy, does get Mm -hmm. trapped in our bodies, spinal cord injured or not. But with spinal cord injury, it's ever more heightened because now you have your physique, you know, physiologically, you've got your body going against Mm -hmm. you as you just beautifully illustrated. And so how important and powerful it is that we move towards what it is that we're resisting or that the body is resisting so that we can loosen it. We just did a podcast interview with my son uh, last week. Mm. It's very intense, very personal. You know, normally we interview scientists and uh, clinicians and advocates, you know, it's a pretty science heavy podcast. This one was all the catalyst for it was our board and staff had a retreat here in the twin cities. And it just so happened to fall on the same weekend that my son had a show and a performance. And so most of us went to that show after a long day of, you know, strategic conversations in the middle of the show, my son did something. He's, he's, he's very good on stage. We'll put it that way. And he said, we're going to do something a little different. And he told the sound guy, turn the lights down. And the room, there's was a couple hundred people in this venue. Uh, lights go down, it's pitch black. And he says, uh, we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to play a recording from you, for you. I want, to, I want you to close your eyes. And for the next 10 minutes, people stood there with their eyes closed in the dark, listening to this audio mm-hmm. recording. And it turned out it had just mm-hmm. dropped to the BBC Channel 4 as a result of our podcast producer and he that are, who are friends and is this really beautiful exposition called the bog B O G. And it starts out with, I think one of the best and obviously more artful descriptions of spinal cord injury that I think I've ever heard. And he's talking about his obsession with the bog and the obsession with stillness. And he describes, you know, spinal cord injury is essentially a forced stillness in your body. And the closer you listen and the closer you pay attention and live with it, the more you realize there's still a lot happening. But your orientation is forced to change because your body is no longer responding as it's supposed to or as you've, all the years you've lived prior to injury, it's not betrayed you like this. And then it goes on. And so I think of what you're describing as a, I mean, there's a lot that I've learned from my son and his articulation, very visceral articulation in his music and art of the experience of spinal cord injury. And most importantly, 
the universalization of that experience, not just for spinal cord injury, is very adept at shining a light on everyone's experience as it relates to that. Yeah, we can't go back to life as it was. Can we give a shout out to Gabriel and where our <laughs> listeners sure. might find I that have, Yeah, very music? happy to, uh, unashamedly. He does have a website, which is gabrielrodrick.com, G-A-B-R-I-E-L-R-O-D-R-E-I-C-K.com. His performance name is Freak, F-R-E-A-Q-U-E. And he's on all the, you know, Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Bandcamp, you know, all that stuff. And he has a number of albums. He was in a band called Treading North uh, that released a few albums, but now he, they sort of dispersed. They were all a bunch of youngins who then went on, you know, in their college and careers. But now he performs under the uh, freak. And then he's also has a project called A Cripple's Dance. He choreographed, wrote, it's a interabled dance program with a few people who have spinal cord injuries, both dancers and musicians, and then also able-bodied folk. It's a gorgeous production. It was featured, part of it was featured in a recent documentary called Move Me by Kelsey Peterson, who's a close friend of Gabriel's. And it's kind of a a reclaiming of that word cripple in some sense. You know, a lot of people find that word offensive, like other offensive words of the day. But again, in, the, in Gabriel's creative genius, I've seen the show many times, and uh, it's a very moving exposition on spinal cord injury. At the end of every show, he asks the audience to stay and that they're going to have a Q&A but he always starts that Q&A with an articulation to the, back to the audience to ask them, how are they crippled? And it completely transforms the dialogue of how people respond to what they just saw and then a reflection upon themselves. And in the shows that I witnessed, I mean, you hear from the audience unsolicited things like, you know, their time with substance addiction or their time of suicide attempts or depression or anxiety or family trauma or, you know, all this intimacy comes out yeah. in that context because you've pulled a thread, right? Unrattled something about the way people might look at a person in a wheelchair or think of that word crippled and associate it with that image but he completely flips it over on you, um, which is beautiful. It's so beautiful that we might actually be uh, whitewashing <laughs> or in some poetic way missing right. the opportunity right. to go deeper with our reframes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, really powerful. Well, Matthew, I'd like to turn the corner with you from, from music and documentary to your advocacy work um, that really has moved from a coalition of people interested in learning about spinal cord injury, but to a cure, and now to state and federal funding. Can you help us understand why it matters to be seeking state and federal funding? There are systems in the world. There are systems in place. Systems everywhere. Oh, yeah, we're living within all sorts of system layers, layers of systems and systems upon systems. And 
I often think about our work, and, and certainly this is a sort of an evolution. I'm always thinking about it, always reflecting on it, is in many ways what really drives everything we do is this initially this recognition that the status quo systems around biomedical research or academic research or funding or capital investment, all of those things in many cases are without the input of people who live with the experience. So one point of reference for us always is how can we inject the lived experience into the research experience or the clinical practice experience. Mm -hmm. And then the second thing is in doing that, you start to recognize that there are rigidities in some of those systems. There are those who I'm not articulating any villain in this play. There are no villains, but there are people who, or groups of people within the system that accept the system as it is. And we, in our organization, do not. We are always thinking about, well, wait a minute, this would be more efficient if you did this, or if you change that, or have you ever thought about doing it this way? And that comes from our sort of outside perspective of the lived experience. And so back to your question, coming from that preface, one of the reasons why we went to state legislatures is what we have done everywhere we've gone is not just, you know, shake loose a few million dollars in a state budget, but one of the criteria for doing that is to create an advisory council of people who live with the experience alongside people who research and treat the injury. And we try as best we can, some places we've done better than others, to really shepherd and manage the dialogue that happens in that space. So the people that are sitting at that table making decisions about how to prioritize the use of that money and to what end, we want to be dynamic and very much have an equal voice from the people who have spinal cord injuries or the people like me who are family members. And we believe that that's a transformative piece of the puzzle, along with a bunch of other, you know, how it's, you know, competitive and collaborative and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, other systemic important pieces. But this one about the voice of those who are not only impacted most, but the voice of those, I, I like to think of it, and when we were in the hospital with our son, as you were with yours, and saying to the physicians, we know that you have this expertise. We have expertise about who this is in the bed and about our family. So I think yeah, that's exactly. really what you're, the equal voice that you're bringing to the table. I think it's important to know that we're not the only ones doing that. There are other folks that have been working in that space, uh, researching that space, pushing that, that effort as well. I think we are part of a shift that's been happening in the last number of years. I took over the organization in 2017. My predecessors, that was their, that was their driver. The initial our organization formed around a symposium that happened every year, and it formed during the passage of the Christopher Reeve Act, way back when, in 05, I believe, or 04. They were gathered and rallied, and most of them were 
either women with injuries or mothers of kids with injuries. And they formed, they basically said, you know, we, in order to do this effectively, in order to advocate effectively, we need to have a better understanding of the science. We don't understand it. And so they, they landed on this idea of putting together a scientific meeting that was really driven by and through the lens of people with spinal cord injuries. And this year coming up will be our 18th annual science and advocacy symposium. The organization has grown quite a bit since then. Our impact, our reach, our initiatives, like the state funding programs, you know, where we passed in Pennsylvania and Ohio and Minnesota and Washington, and hopefully in about six weeks, Wisconsin, you know, we've continued to push from that same place. How do we bring our voice, our expertise of the injury into this machine, into this system, and in the effort to transform it. I just love it. And the symposium for our listeners that Matthew's talking about, if you all are still calling it, are you still calling it the Working to Walk Science and Advocacy and Symposium, or did you shift the name? It's actually a very uh, bland <laughs> United Fibrolysis Science and Advocacy Symposium. Yeah, that's all right. The working to walk thing is, you know, as you probably know, walk is a pregnant word in the community and can be a word that's used with naivete. And we didn't want to have that. You know, Archer is an artist to our son and he created uh, a t-shirt. It's perhaps just worth noting because on the back, I just love this t-shirt. His company is Slime Yard and it's a what appears to be almost a weed growing up through a crack and an old sidewalk, but it's actually a very beautiful mm. black-eyed Susan. And then he has put all around the perimeter a poem that says, you know, funny, there was a crack and a weed that no one believed in until it learned to walk mm. on its own without having legs that worked. Ha ha, funny, believe. Nice. Yeah, it's just these different poetic ways that you and Gabe and Archer have of being able to bring something important to our attention and remind us. You know, our nonprofit has the National Coalition of Unexplained Spinal Cord Injury Recoveries that actually grew out, just completely emerged from mm. the Blink of an Eye podcast where people came forth and said, I know of someone who like recovered when they said, you know, he would never walk or use his arms or hands again. And so we've been uh, finding out and reaching out and we've got about six of these folks so far. And I think someday it would be a really great scientific research project to find out mm. what was different in mm -hmm. the circumstances. Um, I held one hypothesis about those who were injured in very cold water who remained in the water before they were rescued that the swelling may have been contained. Uh, but we know we just don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, cooling has been a strategy in the acute phase of injury. Some of the more notable, I think a couple of football players in particular and others uh, who had the access to that. That was even being done before I left the ER in myocardial infarctions, heart attacks, you know, to cool, cool the body. Yeah. yeah. Ice people down mm -hmm, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we might just learn more about that and maybe that'll be mm -hmm. a contribution 
to the emergency room and spinal cord injury someday. I'm interested, too, with this legislative work that you just mentioned in a number of states and, you know, way to go, Wisconsin, you know, bring it around. You created or were part of a documentary film. Yeah. yeah. uh, The Chris (laughs) Cluey rolls a mile in someone else's wheels. How has that contributed to your legislative work? At the time... We were working to pass our bill in Minnesota, which became a $6 million appropriation for spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury. And we were really struggling. I I didn't know anything about lobbying. You know, I was learning as I went, got crushed a few times by uh, the machine. But as I was getting more and more savvy, I realized, you know, we need to draw attention. And I was also getting frustrated that there weren't more people from our community you know, getting involved and seeing the value of doing this. And so I started to reach out to sports figures. And I'm, you know, I knew that people had done this before. I was also very sensitive to, I can't remember what the term is, but, you know, basically like faking a disability. Like I didn't want to create a, an absurdist. You mean like fraud? <laughs> well, no, you know how like, it's like, the idea that you're going to put somebody in a wheelchair and they're going to have some understanding of what it is to have a spinal cord injury is absurd. Oh, right. This uh, empathic experience of in a wheelchair for a day. Uh, a condescension to disability in general, not just spinal cord injury. But that wasn't really what I was after. I was really after simply, let's put this guy in a wheelchair who's a, an accomplished athlete. He was a Minnesota Vikings punter. And I had reached out to a whole bunch of people, you know, both locally and nationally, none of them answered me. You know, I would tweet them and tweet them and send emails and send emails to teams. Nobody would answer me. But finally, this one guy did, Chris Cluey. And it was right before he blew up on the internet for a letter he wrote to a Baltimore legislator about gay marriage. And he exploded, you know, and his followership exploded on Twitter. And he just happened to say yes. So our idea was let's put him in a wheelchair and film him as long as he's willing to stay in that chair. And it turned out he stayed in that chair for 13 hours. He never got out of the chair. Oddly, didn't use the bathroom um, for those 13 hours, which I thought was peculiar. You know, we went to his house, got him in the chair, got him out of the house, and then went through kind of a, a generic day sort of for a person with spinal cord injury. We skipped, you know, the bowel routine and all the morning stuff. You know, that would have been odd. But took him to a rehab facility, took him to meet with a, a physical medicine rehab doc, took him to lunch with a handful of other uh, people with spinal cord injury, my son, quad rugby practice at the end of the day. And then also he can't, he's a musician, so he came and, practice with my son's band in our rehearsal space. And so we just kind of went all over the Twin Cities for this entire day. And what was great is that he's a very smart guy and very empathic. So he, on his, of his own accord, you know, with some coaching from me, you know, just asked very insightful questions and was very curious to know more about spinal cord injury. And that gave us a lot of attention. So when we released that film, we held a screening in Minneapolis uh, to about 300 people. We got on all the local news stations in the newspaper. You know, it kind of took off a little bit. 
We looked for some support from the larger SCL organizations, unfortunately didn't get it. But that was enough to kind of draw a lot of attention to our effort, brought us more people, brought us more authors of our bill, and eventually, not the following session, but the one after, did we get it passed. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I love that story. You know, I'd never made a film. I didn't know what I was doing. I got some friends together. Uh, we rented some cameras, bought some cameras. I had friends who donated. Initially, that was one of the connections to United Fight Paralysis because I reached out to them and said, you know, I want to raise money for this film. Here's what I want to try to do, but I'm not a nonprofit. Would you consider partnering with me? And they said, you know, after a lot of back and forth things said, yes, we'll be your fiscal agent. So any donations that come to your film will be not, you know, charitable. So you can get a tax deduction. And that really helped me raise a few thousand dollars to make this film, did it all in one day. And then uh, took me a long time to edit it. It shows because it's not, you know, it's not a professional project, but I think it was effective in kind of conveying the message and the truth that we wanted to do. It sounds like an absolutely beautiful production. Is it something that we are able to access? It's on YouTube, I know, somewhere, and it's on Vimeo somewhere, unless that's been taken down. I don't know. So it is out there. At one point, I actually tweeted, Chris, a few years ago, because I was looking at the Vimeo stats. We were five countries away from it being viewed on every country in the planet which is kind of a cool, like it's, you know, it wasn't. It, wow. Yeah. You're, you're talking like a, what, 160 some odd countries or whatever it is. 182. I think there are 180. Yeah. It's 185. I don't know what it is, but, but it was a cool, like, you know, it never broke through to getting viral or anything like that, but it was just a cool stat. And so I tweeted him and said, Hey, it's um, almost been viewed in every country on the planet thanks like if you wanted to you know retweet it or something and he did and then i i don't know i I never checked if it actually hit every country on the planet you know i'm really struck as we also wind down that you had this really beautiful idea and you went to some of the larger traditional spinal cord injury uh, foundations and you didn't get a positive response and yet you found one. Well, I didn't get a negative response. I, got, I just didn't get a response, really, or a, you know, a sort of clear understanding. Yeah. yeah, didn't get much didn't of a Didn't get a look. look. <laughs> yeah. But UTFB embraced yeah. it, yeah. Uh, saw it as valuable. They actually saw the state funding initiative as valuable. I actually went to them a little while after to pitch. Before we passed the bill, I said, you know, five years I've learned, or not five, I think it was four by then, three or four, I've learned a lot. Like I've kind of become a lobbyist and I think we could take this on the road. And they said no, but then we passed the bill in Minnesota and then they reached back out to me and said, we'd like to hire you small stipend. You know, you become our outreach coordinator or whatever they called me. Uh, And that's when I started working for the organization back in 2015. And now you're the executive director. Well, thank you for all that hard work. And I suppose there's a a nexus now between that great film and legislative dollars that will come in. Is that accurate? I think so. I mean, we're by the end of this year, we've generated over $30 million into the research space in Minnesota in particular. 
We've generated multiple clinical trials. Uh, people have restored function, both in cell transplantation and device spinal cord stimulation, rehab modalities, uh, you know, a bunch of stuff that if our calculations are correct, it's crossed over 200 people with spinal cord injuries who've had some kind of restored function as a result of these studies. And in one case, an effort to translate spinal cord stimulation into clinical practice. Well, Matthew, Roderick, I can't thank you enough for your zealousy um, and your advocacy and your beautiful illustration of how trauma impacts us. And it's not just a one and done event but is an experience that can really be metabolized for good over a lifetime if there's some integration. And it seems like you've been on that path of integration. As a final question, I'm wondering what's next for Matthew Roderick? Well, I can't, I can't tell you exactly. We do have a pretty novel idea that we're tossing about. One of the things that I've been doing one of many things, but especially as, as we've grown and I've hired more staff and I can turn my attention to more strategic effort, I've been facilitating a, what we call a translational working group, looking at how do discoveries translate to clinical practice and why are they not, why are they so difficult or why are they so slow or why don't they translate for spinal cord injury? And we've been meeting essentially twice a month for the last three years. Clinicians, researchers across many disciplines, some SCI foundations, and we're starting to close in on a strategy that we hope to recommend. It's still coalescing. I can't really speak to it without betraying it because <laughs> I can't say yet. Yeah. 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 Partly the reason why I say that is that we are always I am always, I hate to say it again, but I'm always trying to remain porous. I'm trying to not get stuck in, I run a nonprofit organization. I tell my staff, the minute our programs become our mission, we should fold up the tents and lock the door and go home. We have to remain porous. We have to remain nimble to change our mission to what is required. Uh, because ultimately, we really don't care about anything else other than helping to deliver restorative treatments for people with paralysis. And so that we're always trying to figure out how to do that, always trying to figure out how to change what we do so we don't get stuck and we don't become part of that status quo system. And that's partly why I mentioned that initiative of, of a few others that we are trying to navigate. How do we get the most bang for our buck in this translational pipeline system to really deliver transformative change and not just eat around the edges of a system that is difficult to change or maybe even doesn't want to change? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Here's to remaining flexible and open and responsive to what comes our way. So we can integrate something new right so we can integrate something new well thank you matthew roderick it's been a pleasure thanks for having me really appreciate it mm -hmm. 
as we reflect on Matthew's journey and his willingness to raise delicate issues as an SCI parent and child navigate and their hopes and dreams to integrate their new lives. It's clear that his path provides thoughtful reflection for caregivers and scientists. His life was forever altered when his son Gabe faced a life-changing moment while bodyboarding in the surf of Costa Rica. Navigating care and the complexity of relationships and career, Matthew left behind his role as an emergency department operations supervisor at the Fairview Health System, which was not just a career change for Matthew. It marked the beginning of a travel odyssey shared with his son, Gabe, a quest for hope, healing, and transformation. Their journey spanned continents as they tirelessly sought the most promising treatments, a testament to a father's unwavering love and determination. Ultimately, they found themselves back in the heart of Minnesota, a home they returned to, not in surrender, but to raise their voices for change. Matthew's dedication crystallized into advocacy as he united a diverse community of SCI champions and researchers within the state. With grit and compassion, Matthew took charge, leading the charge to sway the state legislature toward a cause that resonated deeply within his heart. With the fierce commitment of a father, his efforts weren't just about scientific advancements for SCI. He aimed to inject the lived experience into the clinical experience. Through his leadership, Matthew fused together the hopes and practical needs of many SCI families with the scientist research efforts into a single purpose, to push the boundaries on restorative medical advancements in spinal cord injury, while also transforming the system and potentially altering the course of many SCI medical research initiatives. Stay tuned for more incredible stories and insights on spinal cord injury heroes and innovators in future episodes in the Dear Louise series of our podcast. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. Life can change in the blink of an eye. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Blink of an Eye on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.